Hi, Idaho and true crime followers alike. My name is Andy with an I, and this is the Idaho Crime Squad Pod. Welcome to the Idaho Crime Squad pod where we talk about crime and creepy things that happen here in our beloved Potato State. We have been getting tons and tons of requests and questions if we're ever going to release merch. And now that the dust is kind of settling on like the release of the podcast, the answer is yes, we are gearing up to release some merch at the end of summer. I'm excited because we'll be kind of getting into like spooky season at that time. And the merch that we are like working on right now is really, really cool. I seriously, I'm going to wear it everywhere I go. Very, very exciting. I can't wait for that to be able to drop. And I'll give you guys more details as we get closer to that. Okay, enough chit chat here. So we are doing our very first two-parter. These are going to be teeny tiny episodes. Um, but it's important I split this up into two parts because I wanted to be really thorough with the short amount of time that I have for you guys. So in part one, we're going to be talking a little bit about the incident, what happened, some background, that kind of stuff. And then in part two, we're going to go into some theories. I'm going to give you a little bit of, you know, a suspect in part one, but I want to be able to give you guys a little bit of a cliffhanger. And then in part two, we're going to get into some theories about who people think might have done this. And just for the record, I personally think I know who did this. However, I don't want to bias you guys. Like, I really want to hear your honest thoughts and opinions on it. So I'm going to try my hardest not to let you guys know who I think it was, at least not right off the bat. Um, But just know that this case is still open and considered unsolved. But yeah, I'm pretty sold on who I think did this, but my husband disagrees with me. So it'll kind of be fun to present this and see what you guys think. All right, so I haven't really done this in a while, but I think it's important for this specific story. Um, If we talk a little bit about the town that it happened in, and you'll kind of see why later. The first thing that you guys should know is that we posted a map of this town up on our Instagram, which is at Idaho Crime Squad Pod, and the Facebook page, which is just Idaho Crime Squad. The map really helped me understand like how small this area really is and how insane it is that this happened and that no one saw it happen. So we're going to Chalice, Idaho today. Chalice is between like Stanley and Salmon. So if you don't have the map handy, imagine the state of Idaho on a map. Imagine Idaho written in the dead center of the state. It would be like just above the O in Idaho. Now this is not what I consider Eastern Idaho when I talk shit on Eastern Idaho. This is like Northeastern. It's fucking beautiful up there. We're getting closer to Montana in that region. It's very much like mountain air, cooler summers, wildflowers, hunting kind of country. If you're looking at the map that we posted, the first thing you're going to notice is the giant yellow line going right down the center of Chalice, and that is Highway 93. Now, in the upper right, there's going to be a B pointed at a building, and that is the bowling alley we're going to be talking about. Just below that to the left, there's going to be an S, and that's going to be the school that we'll be talking about. And then in the lower right where it says SH, that is the region where Stephanie's house is suspected to have been where she was supposed to be heading. I couldn't get an exact location or an address, just know that that 
is where geographically her house would be, where it would make sense that she was headed in that direction. Now, Chalice is a very, very small town. It's probably the smallest we've covered so far on the pod. It has less than a thousand people living in it, 922 currently, so smaller than my high school. And the population kind of likes to hang out there in that sweet spot around a thousand people. In 1993, which is when this happened, its population was about 1,050, so still smaller than my high school. Chalice was founded in 1878, and it was named after a man, A.P. Chalice, who happened to just be surveying the area, um, and they ended up naming the town after him. It's surrounded by mines. Um, I'm not exactly sure what kind of mines. I think I talk about it a little bit later, but this town is only 1.8 square miles. It's freaking tiny. The violent crime rate here, it's given a 10.9, which is super freaking low. The national average is 22.7. I'm not going to go into much more stats with you guys. Just know this place is a very, very safe place and very small. To be point blank, this is very much one of those towns where people never lock their doors, right? Like Keith Morrison would say. So Stephanie was born September 28th, 1984 to Ben Crane and Sandy Anderson Crane. She definitely by no means was a girly girl. They, in fact, they described her as a tomboy. She was very close to her dad. It was obvious they had a very special and loving relationship. She always wanted to be fishing, hunting, and she loved rock picking, a true Idaho girl. She was very outdoorsy. Her best friend said that they were both raised the same way. Like they preferred to be out in in the dirt and roughhousing. Stephanie was also very social. Everyone described her as fun to be around. She didn't have any enemies. She was very much a well-liked kid in the community. Now, Stephanie's dad worked in the mines and he had a side business doing taxidermy, which makes sense because this area is very popular for like deer and elk hunting. So if he was good at taxidermy, it makes sense that he would probably you know, get a lot of business from hunters in the area. Her mom was a stay-at-home mom, and Stephanie was the oldest of four girls. She had three younger sisters, aged two, four, and six. But I get the vibe that Stephanie was the closest to her dad out of all the kids, at least at this time. Obviously, the other girls were younger, so. But Stephanie loved being a big sister and was always looking out for them, making sure they were taken care of. She really, really loved them. But Stephanie especially had a super close relationship with her grandmother. Hazel as well. Hazel stated that Stephanie loved to come play in her yard while Hazel was out working in it and that she spent a lot of time at her house growing up. Another thing Stephanie really liked to do was wander the town on her bike. Now again, this is 1993. Anyone my age or older remembers that this was pretty normal, you know, back in the 90s. Obviously, things are different now, and it sounds a little crazy, but that really was just the reality back then. And Stephanie really appreciated this freedom and felt very safe doing this, mainly because when she was writing, she knew everyone who crossed her path. So let's get down to it here. On Monday, October 11th, 1993, Stephanie got out of school around 3 p.m. and walked down to Chalice Lane's bowling alley with her friends Chase McCoy and Brandy Bennett's. Now, normally, Stephanie would walk home or, or walk to her grandmother's after school, but not on Mondays. You see, Stephanie was part of an after-school elementary bowling league with a few other kids. They were being supervised at this event. They had, like, a team mom. Her name is Luann Berry, and she would kind of sit and watch them bowl for a few games and keep score for them until they were finished. So that specific day, bowling league started wrapping up around 4.45. The kids say their goodbyes and start heading their separate ways. Stephanie's mom expected her home around 5 p.m. So if Stephanie had different plans other than walking home, her mom was not aware of them. Now, the team mom, Luann, remembers speaking to Stephanie just before Luann was getting in her car to leave, and Stephanie told her she was headed home. Now, there's a small creek next to the bowling alley, which Stephanie would need to cross if she was headed in the direction of her home. If you're looking at the map, you can see it. 
right there. And as Luann was watching Stephanie in her rearview mirror, Stephanie was headed to the footbridge that crossed that creek. About five minutes later, though, Brandy Bennett's, one of Stephanie's friends, was riding in a car with her mother, and they see Stephanie. Although this time, she's not headed home. She's getting ready to cross Highway 93, like headed into town. They pulled over to her, and Brandy asked her, like, hey, Stephanie, what are you doing? Do you want to ride home? Stephanie said no. She was heading back to the high school because she left her backpack at the soccer fields, and she didn't want to trouble them to wait for her. Now, I know what you're thinking. When did Stephanie have time to leave her backpack at the soccer fields? So in Chalice, and actually quite a few small towns in Idaho, the high school and the junior high, they're the, just the same school. So they just have like a 6 through 12 junior-senior high school. And then the elementary school, which Stephanie attended, was on the same property. So all of the kids are kind of congregated in the same general area. And according to our map, Stephanie could have very likely walked past the junior-senior high school to get to the bowling alley, thus giving her an opportunity to leave her backpack somewhere around there. So Brandy waved goodbye to her friend and did not know that she and her mom would be the last known people to see Stephanie ever again. In the Disappeared documentary episode titled Into the Mist, Brandy is devastated by this encounter. And hindsight is 2020, right? Like, yes, they probably should have insisted that they give her a ride, but it's so easy to say what you could have done. While researching this case, I read a lot of things on Reddit where people were trashing these people because they did not insist on giving Stephanie a ride home. But do you really think that if they knew then what they know now, that they would not have done everything in their power to keep that girl safe. I mean, I feel so terrible for them knowing that Stephanie was taken just minutes after this encounter. It just infuriates me that we are still victim blaming these people who have been through enough in this day and age. I mean, it's just, ugh, I hate it. Moving on. This specific day, 5 p.m. passes and Stephanie's mother, Sandy, notices immediately. The first thing she does is call Grandma Hazel, who lives just down the road or next door, very close by, and ask asks her if Stephanie had stopped by there. Hazel says no, but she knew there were a couple younger boys outside playing, and she would check and see if Stephanie had maybe stopped by to chat or play with them for a little while. However, Stephanie was not with the boys outside, and none of them had claimed to see her recently. Hazel and Sandy kicked it into high gear at this point and started wandering the streets, driving around looking for Stephanie. But as the day starts turning to early evening and then into night, they are in full-blown panic because not only would Stephanie not stay out after dark because it was against the rules, but she was also straight up terrified of the dark. Her grandmother stated that Stephanie would often ask if she could come spend the night, and Hazel would say, of course. But once dusk started creeping in, Stephanie would insist that she wanted to go home to the comfort and safety of her own house where she slept with the lights on. So in Stephanie's family's minds, they all thought the only possibility here would be that she went home and stayed with a friend and planned to stay the night there. I mean, it hadn't even crossed their minds that Stephanie could have gotten grabbed, whether that be because, again, those things just don't happen in Chalice, or maybe they just couldn't force their minds to even get there. But with each person and house that they called, the damning and sinking feeling was undeniable. 
No one had seen Stephanie since around 4.45 when she seemed to be heading home. So at around 8.15 p.m., Sandy Crane burst through the doors of the Custer County Sheriff's Office and reported her nine-year-old daughter missing. Now, there was only one deputy present at the office, and they were immediately sent to go search the creek behind the bowling alley just to see if maybe she had fallen in. But again, no trace of Stephanie. A massive search party started that very evening. Nearly everyone in town and surrounding areas areas got involved, just combing the area for any trace of the little girl. Police are driving around town, neighbors are knocking on doors, they had every Custer County Sheriff's Office truck out, horses, four-wheelers, they even have boats out searching the Salmon River. But unfortunately, there is no sign of her and the search would be called off around 1 a.m. The next day, though, everyone hit the ground running again. At this point, the state police as well as fire departments are involved. They're walking fields, looking through the mines. I mean, everywhere in this town was combed through vigorously. So let's come back to reality real quick here. Stephanie, spoiler alert, to this day has never been found. And there's a problem with their search tactic that is making things much scarier. And that is that although Highway 93 is not super well-traveled normally throughout the year, this happened in October, which is hunting season, and there were tons of people coming in and out of the area and just passing through the town. Tips started pouring into the sheriff's office, and there are a few of them to note. One of them was actually from Chase McCoy, one of Stephanie's friends who was at the bowling alley that day. He stated that he noticed a creepy man at the bowling alley kind of watching the kids bowl from afar. Now, Chase didn't report this to Luann, the parent, at the time. But he did mentally take note of it. When Chase found out that Stephanie was missing, he reported this incident to police and they brought in a sketch artist to help with a composite sketch. He was described as a white male, about 37 years old, 5'10", and approximately 175 pounds. All right, if you're not driving, stop what you're doing and go to our Instagram at Idaho Crime Squad Pod. Find the Stephanie Crane post and there will be a picture of this composite sketch. I'm looking at it right now. It's right in front of me. This is a very generic looking white guy. I mean, like, I could probably think of five people off the top of my head who this looks like. One of those people is my brother. I mean, this looks exactly like him. So when I say that this is a generic looking white guy, you probably have an ex-boyfriend that looks like this. What I'm trying to say is that Idaho is very much predominantly white, and this sketch wasn't super helpful. Now, another tip that came in was of a suspicious truck that was parked near the school the day that Stephanie went missing. Tons of people in town saw this truck and didn't recognize it. It was yellow with a pinstripe on it, but nobody got the plate number on it. And another tip that was called in was by a gas station attendant who stated the day Stephanie went missing, two men in a blue van had stopped into the gas station and were arguing in kind of a quiet and hushed way. This van was again spotted about 30 miles south of Chalice, but it was never seen again. So things in Chalice were bananas at this point. Parents were not allowing their children to even walk to the school bus anymore alone. They would literally come right into the classroom to pick them up. And I don't blame them. Pretty soon, days turned to weeks, which turned to months, which would turn into years with barely any leads. This, understandably, was very frustrating for the town, but especially the family, and they were very vocal about this. Actually, in 1995, the attorney general came to Chalice to speak with the family and ideally help dilute the situation and tension. This kind of backfired. I mean, to say it went terribly is an understatement. At one point, the attorney general stated to the family that according to his office, 
there was no proof that a crime was even committed. Grandma Hazel shot back with, quote, do you think she just vaporized? The attorney general then made it very clear that there was still a possibility that Stephanie ran away. And just as a reminder, guys, she's nine years old. Hazel stated, quote, she's a nine-year-old girl. If she were to run away, she'd run to grandma's house and she's not here. All right, so there's something that we need to talk about here. I don't want to spend too much time on it because this is very sad. But this entire thing completely destroyed Sandy and Ben's marriage. And just a year and a half later, they were divorced. Sandy actually ended up leaving her ex and three daughters behind and moved to Reno, Nevada, and almost immediately started having health issues. Sadly, in 1997, she passed away from a blood clot in her lungs. Grandma Hazel stated in the Disappeared episode, quote, I don't know if you cope, you just have to do the things you have to do. As time went on, Ben would feel haunted in the town of Chalice with memories and endless questions of Stephanie. And he would go on to take his three daughters and relocate to Washington State, where he would live until his untimely passing in 2012. Okay, let's rewind a little. Around four years after Stephanie had gone missing, so in 1997, Custer County Sheriff received another tip. This one being from Idaho Fish and Game. They stated that they had a hunter by the name of Keith Hescock in custody for something like illegal poaching. We're gonna go more into detail in part two about why they felt inclined to notify the sheriff about this, but one thing you should know is that Keith Hescock can be placed near Custer County on October 11th, 1993. And here's the thing, placing him in Custer County the day of the event does not make him guilty, right? Until you take into account that years later in Idaho Falls in 2002, a 14-year-old girl with chains on her stated that she had just escaped after being kidnapped by Hescock just hours earlier. And that's where we're going to end part one. My name's Andy with an I. We'll see you guys next time on the Idaho Crime Squad Pod. The Idaho Crime Squad Pod is an Idaho Crime Squad production. Trademark 2022. All rights reserved.